You know, brethren, as Mr. Hogberg brought out, the leadership in this country has left us with a situation that has created a world literally filled with societal stressors of all kinds. I believe that the hallmark stressor that we will look back on perhaps for generations, certainly it's on everyone's mind right now, is the event that took place in January of this year with regard to the break-in of the Congressional Building in Washington, D.C. Now, the term break-in, it means different things to different people. But what that event did is show a divide in approach, a divide in understanding, a divide in a view and def definition of morality. The term break-in, you know, what, what's your reaction to it? Some view the events that occurred in January with amazement. Other people view them with doubt and fear. Some view the participants as modern heroes and even patriots, while others see them as thugs, subversives, and terrorists. But brethren, what about our views in cultural developments? And brethren, I, when I say our views, I'm asking what are our views as people called to grow in spiritual maturity and stability. What are our views? You know, prejudice and prejudices are common. They cut across all lines, whether economic standing, ethnicity, age, and of course, race. What about our views regarding popular media, for example? Watch the news, and we see there deep-seated cultural and political opinions on one hand, CNN on the other hand, Fox News, and this giant pendulum rotates back and forth, and what we see on all sides is a vitriol and a disrespect shown uniformly. Social media, and social media always seems to uh, be a target for somebody to make some comment about. And here I am standing up here about to say something about social media. Please understand, I'm not against technology. I'm not against social media. I love YouTube. I have yet to come up with a single question about doing anything that I haven't gone on YouTube and found multiple people on there producing a video that told me exactly what I needed to know. Tremendous amount of information, love it. But that's not all social media. It's not even YouTube. It's all the time, all kinds of things on there. You know, what we see in some social media platforms, they become a, a voice for crude animus toward others, 
people who believe they have a right to comment on other people's opinions and ideas and comments, vulgarity and profanity, reminds me, I tell you, I had to, and I won't mention the name of the application, but it's work-related. I had to download it on, and go into it and look at some things. And it just struck me as I was looking at the comments, boy, these folks are out of control. It reminded me of a bunch of little boys who had just discovered what a four-letter word is, and they just were using it left and right. Incredible. There, in all of this, in all of this, brethren, there is an insistent drumbeat where others are wrong, others are unworthy unless they fall in line and agree with me. There's even been a phrase coined now called cancel culture. And by the way, uh, if... Uh, you haven't already, I'd really encourage you to go on Friday Night Live. And Mr. Joel Meeker, in fact, uh, did a presentation on cancel culture. Absolutely fascinating and uh, appreciated it uh, very much. So uh, that's just a kind of an aside. Brethren, I'm going to stop here and admonish all of us that we need to stop and start thinking clearly and quietly about what we're seeing. Just zip it and listen to what is going on and not participate long enough to hear what is being said. You know, Daniel Kahneman uh, is a uh, um, scientist, a social scientist. He is a Nobel Prize uh, winner uh, in economics for research in an area of decision-making. He wrote a book, actually uh, Dr. Phil Dick even mentioned it oh, several weeks ago uh, in uh, uh, his message. Uh, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. There is a term that he used, he didn't coin, but he did cite it, it's called Effective blindness. Effective blindness is the intense focus on a task to the point that things that are normally seen, normally recognized, and that normally attract attention are just simply missed. They're not seen at all. He cited an example. There was a research study done. Very simple, very simple research. Researchers took two basketball teams. One team they dressed in white t-shirts. Another team they dressed in black t-shirts. Took them out on a car, a basketball court. Their sole task, the only thing they had to do was take the basketballs that they were given and pass those basketballs back and forth in any order, random, the white shirters didn't have to just pass the ball to white shirters. They could pass to the guys wearing black and vice versa. There was no limits on how they passed the balls. If they dribbled them a little while and then passed them, no limits. And then they videotaped it. 
ran the video or taped it for, I don't know, 20, maybe 30 seconds. Then later, they took that video and they brought in the test groups. And they had the test groups sit down, watch the video, and they asked them to count only the number of times that the men in the white t-shirts passed the basketball. Didn't matter who they passed it to. Didn't matter if they dribbled it and then passed it. Just how many times did the men wearing the white t-shirts pass the basketball? What's interesting, and this little part I didn't tell you, while they were videotaping the basketball teams, halfway through this episode, this guy came out wearing a gorilla suit. Came in from the side, stood in the middle of these teams, and sat there, stood there, beat his chest, jumped up and down, stopped, and then just walked off. He was out there for nine seconds. When they surveyed the test group, after they had done their counting, 50% of the people in the test group, 50% did not see the gorilla at all. This research project, by the way, has been conducted hundreds of times across many, many cultures, nations, and ethnic groups. And the stats all lined up the same. Every one of them. What's interesting, I was talking to one of our church members, one of our brethren in uh, Sherman several months ago, and this subject came up, and he said, look, when I was in college, I actually took that test. I was one of the counters. And he said, not only did I not see the gorilla, when I started counting, I didn't even see the people wearing the black shirts. And by the way, he said, they passed it 17 times. Interesting. Well, brother, so what? Interesting story. Interesting result. And so many of the stressors that we see in society, brethren, and this is the reason I bring this up, those stressors, as odious as they may be, they're not the problem. But they are symptoms of something much deeper and universal and unfortunately being completely ignored. We literally are watching in real time what life looks like when man becomes so distracted by societal noise that the utter simple concept of kindness that one person owes to another is drowned out and is completely lost. 
You know, brethren, because of the distractions, it is my opinion that every one of us are at risk. And I want us to take just a few minutes this afternoon to take a look at a very, very, very basic principle of human relations as it is biblically defined. You know, the Bible obviously is rich in instruction in human relations. Relations between couples, you can find a lot of instructions in Deuteronomy 22 through Deuteronomy 25, Romans uh, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Offering opinions, when should you, when should you not? Proverbs 11:12. 12. He that is void of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. People's right to know. That is a phrase that is just ground out constantly in all the medias. Well, Proverbs 11:13 says a talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Proverbs 25, 9, debate your cause with your neighbor himself and do not disclose the secret of another unless he that hears it exposes your shame and your reputation is put to ruin. And then, of course, the old, old favorite, I think, of everybody, Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Brethren, as important as these instructions and proverbs are, we need to drill deeper. And I'm thinking of a principle that is really, really basic. You know, Cain asked an interesting question. You'll remember the story in Genesis 4 where at some point God came into the the garden and approached Cain. Apparently he was looking for Abel, couldn't find him. He approached Cain and said, uh, hey, you seen your brother? Where is he? Do you know? Cain responded, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Seriously, God, do I have to keep up with everything here? Christ also had a lot to say about this matter. In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them asked him, asked Christ, a question testing him and saying, Teacher, which, of the great, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and all your soul and all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. But then Christ drew focus on a second law. Verse 39, And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. 
Brethren, I want to take a little time this afternoon and actually dovetail with a message that was given a few weeks back in a sermonette by uh, Mr. Jennings where he touched on this subject of being a neighbor. I'd like to look at it again and look at a few other aspects of it because I think it's so basic and yet, brethren, it is being missed by everyone. And I think, brethren, even sometimes you and I are troubled and we kind of miss some the obvious sometimes. Brethren, when we talk about loving our neighbor, how in fact does it work? Is loving your neighbor, first of all, the term love in society is really distorted. Doesn't resemble what in fact God had in mind. But what is it? Is it a feeling? Is it something that someone does? Is it something that someone simply believes? Or is it tangible? Is it a recognizable thing that when we encounter it, we can point to it, say, that's love. That's, I recognize that. That's what it looks like. Similar question with regard to our neighbors. Who is a neighbor? That question's come up. We're going to look at it in just a moment. Who is a neighbor? It is a neighbor defined by physical proximity? Is it defined by race? Gender? Standing in society? Or, brethren, is it a simple matter of expedience? You're my neighbor if I need you. Or maybe vice versa. Who is a neighbor? Christ answered the question. We're going to turn now to a, another version of what we read in Matthew 22, but this time in Luke 10. In Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 25, kind of repetition of what we read earlier in Matthew. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Christ, said to him, Well, what's written in the law? What are you, what's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Christ said to him, you have rightly answered, this do, and you'll live. But he, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, well, really, I mean, who's, who's, who's my neighbor? The man wanted a clear definition where he could look at and say, all right, this group, they make up my neighbor. They constitute my neighbor. And these people, yeah, well, maybe not so much. It's not what Christ said. Continuing in verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves 
who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him for dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Oh my, oh my, I can't wait, can't wait, I'm busy. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on the other side. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured in oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come back, I'll repay you. Then verse 36, Christ asks, So, what do you think, bud? What do you think? Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Verse 37, and he said, well, he who showed him mercy, I suppose. Then Jesus said to him, go, go do and like, do likewise. Brethren, let me give you a real life, real example. Not near as dramatic as this. Real life example that happened to me a few years ago. I was driving home after work, took a detour, wanted to go to a store uh, and uh, uh, pick up something after work. And I was traveling down this road and it was a boulevard in Irving. And so I got over in the left right hand lane to make a right hand turn at the intersection. You know how it goes. Uh, line of cars, uh, the guy in front, he turns, the line moves up, next guy turns, the line moves up. Well, that's kind of the routine. There were probably, I don't know, 10, 15 of us in line. And we were inching up, inching up, inching up. I hadn't noticed, but to my right, there was a empty big box store of some kind. And uh, as I inched up one time, I came to uh, the driveway entrance for this store. Well, um, I stopped there. Then I watched the line move up in just a minute. So I started to proceed. Didn't notice that there was a guy in a, uh, probably a two-ton utility truck of some kind here to my left. And he gunned his truck and then cut in front of me. Well, he didn't have room. He wouldn't have had room had I been standing still. And bang, I, I popped him and, and tore up the front of my, my car and scr scratched his truck. And so uh, uh, we turned off, went in the driveway, and, and he and I pulled off. Something interesting. I noticed that as I pulled in, there was a red SUV came in behind me, uh, driven by a lady. And... Uh, I, she rolled down her window and said, you know, I saw what happened and um, I'll just hang around and if you need a 
statement given to the police. Uh, it was clearly not your fault. Uh, and so I'll be glad to talk to the police. Well, wow, that's really kind. So she parked her car. Also at the same time, another car pulled in. This time it was a sedan of some kind. Lady was in it. She rolled down the passenger window, leaned across, and said, you know, I saw what happened, and I'll be glad to uh, uh, give a statement if you need one for the police or your insurance, you know, I'll be glad to. And then she handed me her business card and said, I've got to go to a meeting, and I can't stay. Uh, but I tell you what, when I get out of the meeting, if you guys are still here, I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Okay. Took the card, thanked her, and that was that. Took forever for the police to get there. I say forever, about 30, 40 minutes for them to show up. And, um, and interestingly, about the time the policeman showed up, here came this lady who first came and then had to leave, and here she came back. And she parked. Sure enough, she and the other lady talked to the policeman, gave uh, him their statements, and, and that was that. Brethren, it's a very innocent example of something. It wasn't any blood. It was more of an inconvenience than anything, that, that kind of accident. But I want to tell you, it gave me and has given me over the years a lot of food for thought. It really has. Brethren, the fact of it is, I've been in the very position that those women have been in. Somebody will take care of it. There's a lot of people here. Somebody else saw it. Bang, I was gone. Those ladies didn't do that. Instead, they stopped using their time going out of their way to be a neighbor somebody they didn't know and who didn't know them again I've thought a lot about that situation now I hope not to ever see that kind of thing again but if it does I hope I learned the lesson I hope I did in half. Now, brethren, when I say this, and I tell you this story, please understand, I'm not suggesting that we need to impose ourselves in situations that are none of our business. That's another thing entirely. But we may need to throttle back our initial reaction to not be involved so that in cases that we can recognize situations for what they are, that we can take an appropriate action. In this case, these ladies did for me. Now the definition of neighbor actually has multiple elements to it. Honesty being one of them. Paul showed that the definition of neighbor is broad and inclusive. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth 
walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through an ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to the work of uncleanliness and greediness, but you have not so learned from Christ. Verse 21, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and that be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on a new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness in verse 25, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Brethren, justice is also an element of being a neighbor. Justice, in fact, is acting honestly toward people who you like and, frankly, who you may not like as much or maybe not at all. In Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, Israel was told with respect to judges, verse 15, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. You shall not respect the person of the poor nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Brethren, that's a really high bar. Really is. And that's what we're called to. You know, honesty absolutely seems like such a simple thing. Brethren, things creep up on us. There's always the potential for dishonesty. Can even be in small little things, simple things, innocent appearing things. For years I was um, treasurer for this congregation. And um, when people donate for uh, the Dallas congregation for activities and so on, then at the end of the year, you know, you grind out a receipt for the uh, donations that were made that year and, and send it to the people who uh, had donated. Well, it's understood that the uh, uh, donations that are received from people with a postmark of no later than the last day in December will be, even though it may be received the next year, they will attribute it to the previous year's donations. Very simple. Once in a while, I'd be asked by someone, you know, they come around the first day or two after the year had turned over. You know, I forgot to send my donation in, uh, and I meant to do it. I had it even filled out. It was ready to go. Uh, if I send it in now, uh, uh, could you put it on my donations for uh, last year? 
Well, brother, we had to turn down those requests. You know, you didn't want to, but we needed to because donation receipts are the church's certification of not just the amount, but the timing of the donation. Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8, 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. An innocent thing. Who would know? Really. Who would know? What would it hurt? Hey, it's just one. Just this one time. Next year, I'll have it in on time. Brethren, why would you trust at any level an institution, a group, or an individual who shows that they can't be trusted in such a small thing? Luke 16.10, I'll just read it. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Brother, that goes down to another step. The letter and the spirit. The letter and the spirit. You know, we see this all the time in the popular medias. Something will come up about a company. They'll get criticized for some act of some kind and the response and I mean it's standard now the response comes out by the business that's been challenged for some questionable practice well you know everything we did was legal we operated within the law you have nothing to complain about I submit to you brethren that if that's a response to a legitimate challenge, then one has reason to doubt the honesty of that response. Another point of being a neighbor and continuing with this honesty sub-theme is being careful to not take advantage of other people's ignorance. Proverbs 3 Verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, and when it is in your power to do so. You know, brethren, I have an example of just this sort of thing. I'm not going to mention any names. I don't know that anybody here would know them, but a uh, friend of mine discovered that a colleague had falsified the number of hours that she spent in an internship. Who would know? Who would know? Well, this friend found out about it, created a real dilemma for them. What do I do with this information? That's another subject, but the point is the violator counted on the ignorance of others assuming that no one would find that out. Brethren, this person is in the healthcare field. That's not only illegal, it could be dangerous for people. Now I'm going to move in a totally different direction. Landmarks. We're all familiar with landmarks. 
if you ever buy a piece of property, buy a home, buy a little lake cabin or something, there's a survey and there'll be a landmark of some kind. Landmarks involve neighbors literally in the purest sense of the word. My mother, when she was in high school, and boy, that's 100 years ago now, uh, she had a summer job in the county, in the Clay County records office. And she, I don't know what she did, but she dealt with the uh, uh, records regarding transfer of properties and deeds and things. And she was saying that when they would go back through some of those old records, that the landmarks on some of those farms and ranches in and around Clay County, they were defined by the big oak tree next to the bend in the West Fork of the Wichita River. And, you know, to them it made perfect sense. They talked about rock formations. They talked about bends in the creek or the river. That would be a, one of the boundaries. Well, that's not how it works today. If you buy a piece of property today, guy comes out, pulls out a tripod, kicks in the GPS, takes a few measurements, then takes this big uh, metal plate on the end of a stake, puts it in that corner, drives it in, then goes to the next corner. Very scientific and very uh, defining. Deuteronomy 19 talked about landmarks. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God gave you to possess. Also in Deuteronomy 27 verse 17 talks about cursed be he that moves his neighbor's landmark and all the people shall say amen. Well, brethren, landmarks are important because they really do involve inheritance laws that talk about putting in jeopardy possessions and livelihoods of perhaps generations of people. We had one example in the book of Ruth where, uh, remember, there was a parcel of land that belonged to Naomi that figured in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Well, these were people that ultimately were ancestors of Jesus Christ. So it becomes kind of important, doesn't it? Brethren, why am I bringing this up? What's this got to do about this topic? Well, it's broader than just the conveyance and identity of land. The application is. You know, I'm going to show my age now. There used to be an old program, computer program, hooked into the internet called Napster. Napster was this program where people could share copies of computer programs and music and I mean this stuff just went all over the place didn't have to pay a red cent for it completely it violated every copyright law ever known to man but there was a huge huge traffic in in this and it's all because of Napster they ultimately 
got shut down, but it was an application that permitted people to exchange music and programs uh, without paying for it. Shof software sharing. And you know, this still it continues. Now, it's not as easy today because they use keys in programs, and that kind of has slowed down that effort, uh, the illicit sharing, but not entirely. And then the other day, I saw this article about a device that you can get that spoofs internet connections so that even if you have nothing but a lower internet speed, if with this device, you can spoof the company and it will automatically give you their highest internet speed without paying you for it. Well, brother, come on. That's a situation that violates the letter of the spirit and every other element that you can think of. The point here is, with regard to landmarks, patents, copyrights, trademarks, these are devices created by society to act as symbols of ownership that can be possessed, sold, and inherited. Who owns them is not important. Look, it's a big company. They're not going to miss if I soak up a little higher speed on my internet program without paying for it. You know, they can afford it. Brother, that's the wrong, wrong uh, thing to say. Instead, what is the right thing to say and do under God's law is that you don't take something that rightly belongs to your neighbor. Brethren, the story that I mentioned a little earlier is not just a funny story about a guy dressed up in a gorilla suit. Instead, it needs to be a warning for us. We need to be careful to not permit the cultural noise that surrounds us to crowd out the truth from our lives or to crowd out the most basic of spiritual principles and of Christian living that we discussed in Matthew 23. To the point that we don't love others as ourselves, but instead see others not as neighbors, but as objects and obstacles to our own ambitions. We're moving in the wrong direction. Christ showed us through the Samaritan in Luke 10 that there are no limits to who we define as neighbor. When it is in our hand to do the right thing toward an individual, that person is our neighbor. A neighbor might be two ladies who showed me the meaning of being a neighbor. In a way, I did not understand that I needed. It involves honesty, not taking advantage of others' weaknesses or ignorance, and not rationalizing conduct that deprives others of what is rightfully theirs. Who is our neighbor? Prophecy answers that question for us today 
in Zechariah 3, <clears throat> verse 10, in that day, talking about the world tomorrow, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, you shall call every man neighbor. So brethren, I want to conclude with two questions. First of all, what is it that stands between you and your neighbor? Is it his politics? Is it your politics? Is it his race? Is it your race? Is it your social standing or his? His financial standing or yours? Brother, the answer to that question I think is contained in one more question. As we discussed above, two great laws, and we gave emphasis to the second law of loving your neighbor. So our final question is this. Are those laws, those two great laws, with emphasis on number two, the matrix through which our thoughts, words, and actions are filtered.